This is episode 154 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Andrea Hayes. She was born on Labor Day in an elevator on the way to the maternity ward in 1978. (laughs) That totally cracks me up. I love people with fun bios. (laughs) She grew up in in the Philadelphia area as one of six kids. She has her bachelor's and master's in speech pathology from Loyola University. Uh, She luckily had an externship at the R. Adams Cowley Shock Trauma Center in Baltimore, and that's when she fell in love with medical SLP. She completed her CFY at the Shock Trauma Center. She worked from 2005 to 2012 at the John Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore with the initial years covering neuro service, then medical oncology, then cardiothoracic surgery rotations, which gave her a really nice range of experience and exposure. She then taught the graduate course Neurology for the Speech Language Pathologists at Loyola University from 2006 to 2012 and created the elective graduate course for tracheostomy and mechanical ventilation. She then, in 2013, decided to move to the Sunshine Coast and fell into an awesome seasonal PRN position at Blake Medical Center, which they then offered her the supervisor of SLP position. She earned her BCSS, her board certification in swallowing, in 2015. Then she earned her master's in health administration in 2019. She prides herself on education, patient safety, quality, and exceeding the bar for our patients. And I just love this conversation with Andrea. I hope you guys all do too. And I hope to bring her back on soon for to hear about some of that neurology that she's been teaching. So hope you all enjoy. to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old-school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Andrea. Good morning, Teresa. How are you today? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah. All right. So tell the people a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, My name is Andrea Hayes. I am a speech pathologist of about 20 years tenure, believe it or not. Grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia and ended up going to school in Baltimore, Maryland at Loyola University. And I ended up doing my master's degree there as well. When I started out in the field, I really entered in college, I was undecided. And then when I began learning about speech pathology, I thought it was a good fit for me because I loved uh, communication and linguistics. And my initial passion was working with kids with autism. And I did a lot of work at Kennedy Krieger in the Center for Autism and Related Disorders. My master's thesis was on oral imitation skills in kids with autism. Uh, Then I had an adult placement in a hospital setting uh, over at Shock Trauma in Baltimore. And that's where I fell in love with medical speech pathology, uh, brain injury, trauma, tracheostomy, you name it. And that's kind of what's shaped my career ever since. 
from my clinical fellowship that was at shock trauma, I ended up in a community hospital in the suburbs of uh, Baltimore, and I spent about two years there, really trial by fire, I guess you would say. So coming out of your fellowship, you think you know everything, you think you've seen everything, um, you've had all these great experiences, and then you land in a hospital where you're one of two speech pathologists now, and really learning what you don't know. And that's part of what I want to discuss today on your podcast is how to really enter that, enter into our field confidently, um, but also comfortably knowing that you don't know everything. From the community hospital, I then was fortunate to receive a position at Johns Hopkins, and I spent about eight years working there and specializing in a few different areas, including neurology and cardiothoracic surgery, which became two passion places for me. And then uh, about eight years in, I decided as a life move to come to the beach, and that's how I ended up here in Florida. Awesome. Um, and I currently serve as a supervisor in speech pathology in my hospital and recently received my Master's of Healthcare Administration degree. Awesome. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much. I, I love SLPs that just, we, we're, we're glutton for punishment. We just want to keep on learning. So. <laughs> was that was that something that you wanted to pursue, or did the hospital want you to pursue that? I'm always fascinated when people, you know, just yeah, keep on going. Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, most of my career, I've really been focused on ongoing education and professional development. Um, I love educating. I love teaching. I love mentoring people in the field. Uh, but I found that I was less inclined to pursue a PhD. That was always the debate, going towards a PhD track or going into more management. And somehow I ended up in the management track, which, you know, there, there's alignment there with someone who enjoys mentorship and education to be able to help supervise and lead a department. The, per, the pursuing of the MHA was really an independent decision. I thought it would open doors down the line. Um, as healthcare changes and it's it's drastically changing, I thought it would be a good door to keep open in future for future opportunities. Awesome. So. When did you do that again, Andrea? Sorry, uh, just got the degree. I, I went back to school in about 2016 and graduated in 2019. Gotcha. So. I wasn't sure if you were going through that as COVID was starting, but that was last year. So, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. And that's changed everything. Yes, too, yes, 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 yes. Awesome. I love that. All right. Well, where, where do you want to start today? What do you want to talk about? Well, I thought we'd talk about um, kind of starting out in, in the hospital setting. What, what do you really need? And I thought we'd start with sort of a medical SLP toolkit. Uh, what is it that you need going up to the floors and being prepared for any case that comes your way? Um, I think that we have the unique privilege in our field of having uh, the ability to work on both communication and swallowing disorders, which are two huge quality of life pieces for our patients. I actually just lectured last week on, on trauma patients, and we had a, a case study who the patient came back in and discussed his, his course here. He ended up, um, he was in a bad motorcycle accident had a lot of orthopedic injuries and pulmonary contusions, so he ended up uh, intubated, tracheostomized, and peg-dependent. And as he went through his therapy course, he, of course, was a Rancho 4 for a long time and brain injured, so didn't remember a lot of his stay. But when he came out of it and when he came and spoke at the lecture that we gave, his, his most crowning achievement in his rehab was being able to eat again and being able to talk again. And it's nice to hear when someone, you know, you think about these ortho injuries and, and it's, 
wanting to walk again. But for him, it was really about swallowing and, and communicating. So that being said, in our field, in the hospital setting, we never know what we're going to encounter. So when you get your general consults for speech pathology, being able to be prepared to get up there and have everything at your fingertips, I think, is hugely important, um, especially as a newer clinician starting out. So things that I find helpful, you know, having a, a, a binder that holds everything for you so you don't have to keep coming back to your office all the time, having your pen light, your tongue depressors, standardized testing materials that are laminated um, so you can wipe them down afterwards, communication boards on hand, and safety signage and things like that I think are critical uh, for hitting the floors and, and, again, encountering everything that you might see in that patient's room. All right. Can you talk a little bit about why you think people should carry things like pen light and tongue depressors and things like that? Sure. <laughs> um, something that I, I found, especially when I came left Hopkins and came down here to Florida, was that there's such variation in the way speech pathologists practice. And if you're not among a, a larger group of speech pathologists, you can see it in greater variability. I find that some people uh, maybe are practicing how they've always practiced and or never received the right mentorship from the get-go and think that they can observe a patient, not touch the patient, and know exactly what's happening with that patient. Um, it's kind of akin to people thinking that they can see through the patient and know if they're aspirating when they haven't done any instrumentation. So. Having that tongue depressor, really uh, looking in the back of the mouth and not being afraid to really get in there, I think is critical. That also um, kind of speaks to the fact that as speech paths, we are versed in the head and neck anatomy and sometimes forget about the neck and below. Um, but to really get to know your patient, I think it's important to be comfortable touching them, looking at all their tubes, you know, removing parts of their gown to really see where their incisions are and how different surgeries that they've had might impact the, whole, the overall picture of communication and swallowing safety. And knowing about the anatomy of not just the head and neck, uh, but delving deep into cardiothoracic anatomy and GI anatomy and really knowing what we're getting into is, is critical. Awesome, yeah, that's so helpful, thank you. All right, what's next? Um, that might kind of dovetail into the not knowing what you don't know, and I know that probably sounds grammatically incorrect, um, but one, one other tip or tidbit, I think, for any clinician starting out or somebody transitioning into medical is sometimes we don't even know that we don't know any, anything, really. We, we go into the case, we've Googled diagnoses that we aren't familiar with, but even still, there are things that we don't know. And it's so important to have a collaboration with the nursing staff, be comfortable talking to physicians directly um, before making you know, unilateral decisions about the person's health, which of course in dysphagia management can be um, quite ominous. So we're lucky, uh, it's 2020, we do have the internet at our fingertips. It's very different from when I started out in uh, even the early 2000s to be able to look things up so quickly. An example that I can think of is an ileus. You know, if you've never heard the term ileus before and you get an order to see a patient and you go in there with all of your food presentations, is that really safe? No, it's not safe at all. Um, sometimes we'll see orders coming through from, from physicians or residents, 
who maybe aren't looking into the entire picture either. They just know that speech should be involved because the patient's 99 and has infiltrates, but not looking into the rest of the case and maybe what's going on down below that could cause some problems. I think, you know, it's also critical that while we should approach every case confidently, it's okay to ask questions. And if you see something, especially see something, say something, right? Um, if you see something that you're not familiar with, whether it be a wound back or a special tracheostomy tube or something like that, it's okay to ask questions and seek, seek out help, you know, whether that be from the nursing staff, the physician staff, your colleagues, putting out a call to another hospital. If you have something that's really unusual that you need a, a second opinion on, you know, having that collaboration with, with local SLPs can be a suggestion. So Awesome. All right. Yeah. What's next? One of um, one of my other favorite topics is remembering that we are the experts. I think that as people enter into the the setting in, in medical speech pathology, we have to know so much, right? We have to know all of the reasons someone might have dysphagia and what type of dysphagia. We have to know all about cognition, we have to know all about tracheostomy tubes, we have to know all all about language and motor speech. Something that I really pride myself on and I pride my staff on is the concept of differential diagnosis and coming out of the evaluation, not just with this patient has moderate aphasia or this patient has moderate expressive aphasia or something like that, one of my memories when I when I was first working at Hopkins on the neurology service was a neurologist in the middle of rounds, in the middle of grand rounds, and a room full of 20 people asked me about the patient's language function. And I said, oh, the patient has moderate, you know, mixed aphasia. He said, no, no, I want to know exactly what type of aphasia she has. And I said, well, she's got moderate aphasia. <laughs> and he wanted to know. It was a transcortical motor aphasia. So for for you as the expert going in, that's what you should be coming out with, not just this patient has a mild dysarthria. You know, no, this patient has a mild ataxic dysarthria yeah. and be able to clarify that. When we have students, I encourage them to not look at neurologic imaging, for example. So when they receive an order and your instinct is to look through the chart and find out their medical history and find out their imaging, I ask them not to look at the CAT scan and not to look at the MRI and go into the room, do a full evaluation, cranial nerves, swallowing function, motor speech, language, cognition, and then come out and tell me what the MRI said. Awesome. (laughs) So I think it's a good practice to get into of, you know, being, being, confident again that we have the neurologic basis. We receive lots of great education in that. We take all these continuing education courses on that. Um, We should be able to go in and come out and say that's that's a pontine stroke, I know it. Or I know that's a left lateral medullary stroke. So that's, a I think, a challenge for anyone going into the field. Same thing with with motor speech and, and language and cognition we should be able to go in and do a standardized test and come out and say where the damage was. Awesome. Amazing, Andrea. Do you have any, any suggestions for people like, I'm sure there's some students or new grads or even veteran SLPs that are listening like crap. I have no idea what, you know, where to start with that is, you know, is there any, 
I guess, how do you suggest people start to learn this neuroanatomy? Is there, you know, favorite textbooks or courses or anything like that? That's a great question. Um, and I think for, for me starting out again, I, I was laughing in, in preparation for this, looking at even the expression, swallow your pride. <laughs> I'm always interested in kind of the etymology of things and locution of things. Yep. <laughs> and I guess it's a biblical reference about uh, swallowing your spittle. Oh. And so it's, it kind of, that's the, the origin of swallow your pride is swallow your spittle. Oh my goodness, Andrea, nobody's ever told me Yeah. Having to swallow something unpleasant or swallow something that, um, you know, it's, it's just kind of a funny reference, I, I suppose, that all of us, um, myself included, and, and especially being asked to do this podcast, um, it's a humbling experience starting out in, in speech pathology and, and especially looking back on your trials and tribulations in the beginning. For me, I've always had a just a strong interest in neuro and from the beginning would just look everything up and start collecting anything I could um, related to neuro. So I think as far as resources or references, Hopping on, again, the Internet's at our fingertips, uh, Gray's Anatomy, and starting to look at anatomic images of the skull, the bones of the skull, um, the foramen that come out of the skull and how the cranial nerves exit there. Looking at, again, the parts of the brain and what they really mean. So we, we all know about the, the major lobes of the brain, but looking again at what does the thalamus do and what does what, what the whole brain stem set up like. You know, looking at Gray's Anatomy for things like that is a good resource. Lots of videos online that show about cranial nerve testing, and I think that's another subject area that takes practice. But again, you should be able to go into that room and do your cranial nerve exam and know if that was a patient who had a cortical stroke or a, a medullary stroke or where the damage really was. Awesome. I think it's also a point of, of pride, again, referencing swallow your pride, to be able to go back to a physician and be a lot more specific with your your diagnostic findings. We see a lot of trauma victims here at my hospital and sometimes trauma to the skull can affect the cranial nerve function just because of swelling at the level of the foramina that the cranial nerves are coming out of. So when we have patients who have dysphagia, instead of saying, oh, we, we're not quite sure, we think it's just because of their their overall trauma, it's much more specific to say, oh, well, I think they actually had um, damage to the glossopharyngeal and vagus nerve um, because of where in the skull the trauma was. So, yeah, I think it's collecting things. If your listeners have any interest, I have some good PowerPoint presentations and references for neuro if they'd like that. Um, I'm happy to share things like that. Yeah, that would, that would be amazing. Yeah, I think kind of one of my... my like phrases that I've really been just living by the last few months is increase competence to increase your confidence. Cause I think people keep asking, you know, well, how do I become a confident medical SLP? You know, it's like, well, and I don't think there's a magic potion to all of a sudden becoming confident in the world of medical SLP, but I think there's so much that we have to know. And I think you just have to be okay with learning as much as you can. And like you said, you know, I, I have so many close colleagues that have had, you know, rocky relationships with physicians, but once they're able to have these conversations on their level, exactly like what you said, no, it's a transcortical aphasia. You know, once they're able to have have these conversations, it 
it does increase our confidence because we're now looked at, as you said, as the expert and not, you know, Sally SLP. I, I don't know. <laughs> exactly. And that's where the specificity comes in. Um, I think that we would want the same for, for any person that we're going to as an expert. Um, if Very we're going to consider so. ourselves yep. the expert, we have to be really um, versed in what we're talking about and what we're, we're diagnosing, especially. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. I love that. Okay. What's next? Um, I guess we could talk about vitals or vital. That's another kind of area um, that I think is helpful to look into or look up more information. As, as you mentioned, the more knowledge, the better. And uh, another exercise that I think is helpful in this setting, in this environment, um, I used to call it the drive-by, where, you know, you, you get your order for the patient and before going in that room, you just stand in the doorway for five minutes, give it five good minutes and observe everything going on, especially in the ICU setting, is to just get really comfortable with the equipment. So we have a patient in critical care, for example, and you're standing at the doorway and you see a couple chest tubes and a wound back and IVs coming out of them and maybe an uh, you know, intra-aortic balloon pump, possibly. We just had a case like that the other day. So looking, seeing what you see, again, being comfortable touching the patient and seeing where the tubes and lines are coming out of and where they're connected to and how much oxygen they're on and what type of oxygen delivery system they have. All those things are important before you even walk in. Uh, the other thing is, is just being sensitive to their vital signs. So, you know, as we know, every human is different and everyone has their own barometer of what's normal. Um, so you might have a patient who has an SpO2 of 88% and that's just perfectly fine for them and it's not something to be alarmed at. Um, you might have a person who's morbidly obese and when they start eating, all of a sudden they're tachypnic and they're breathing at 35 times a minute and that's okay. That's, that's, person, that's their normal. Um, so kind of being aware and how to gauge what's the person's, the individual's normal and then what's physiologically normal or abnormal, um, I think is helpful to, to look up that information as well. And, and again, collaborate. Talk to your nurses. Talk to your doctors. Don't make rush decisions just because they desatted a little bit uh, when they started eating. Yeah. I, you know, I love that you said that. And I think of you know, my son's going back to school now and they take their, the kids' temperatures every day before they get there. Mm -hmm. And his is usually just baseline, like a little on the higher side. And, you know, mm -hmm. the one teacher takes it every day. It's about the same every day. And then one day they had somebody else come out and take it. And she's like, oh, this is high. I'm not sure if he should be in school. He might have a fever. And I was like, nope, go back and look at all the other days. I said, that's exactly, yeah. that's his temperature. And she's like, oh, I'm so glad we have this history. You know, and it just immediately I switched mm -hmm. into my work brain because I'm like, you know, how many times do we have some people that just come in and they don't know the patient's normal presentation? And we, we mm -hmm. think it's disordered. And now all of a sudden we've called in the troops for a million other things when it's just, like you said, how they present on a normal daily basis. So Exactly. And, and that's a nice segue into, you know, who is the patient? So we get them after the injury, right? We get them after they're sick. Um, but it's really critical to know what they were before. And I think despite the demands that we have for paperwork and making sure we're dotting the I's and crossing the T's, it's really critical to reach out to the family, especially now in COVID time. We, we still don't have visitors at our hospital, um, but taking the time to make that phone call to the patient's family to know what their functional normal yes. is before we're setting goals for something that might not be abnormal. Yes. 
think that's a, a piece that sometimes goes by the wayside when we're rushing around in, in this type of a setting, but it's really crucial. You know, I, I, I want to ask you, Andrea, and, and this may be out of line or I, I don't know, but in the past, it's always kind of struck me as, you know, when, I, when I'm talking to administrators or people that work higher up and, you know, now that you have that, the MHA, I'm curious if this was discussed at all in that, but I think a lot of times I'll, I'll have these conversations with administrators or, or people like that. And they're like, well, we have to do this, this, and this. And I'm like, well, first we need to call the family. We don't even know if the family wants that, wants that test or wants to go that path. And they're like, no, 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 we can't get family involved. We've got to do, you know, and I, I'm obviously making a huge overgeneralization, but I'm just curious, you know, how much of that piece, the family piece and the, and the seeing, you know, the patient presentation is that discussed a lot in the MAJ program or, you know, I just feel like it's, it's a piece that I have these conversations with administrators all the time. And they look at me like, I'm like, like I've got 27 heads because I want to call in the family before I make a decision. <laughs> right. Right. And that's, that's another one of the subjects that when I asked my colleagues, what it would, what, what should the topics be for this podcast today? You know, what's really important to talk about. There's so much, I mean, you know, we could talk for hours and hours, but that's why you have your podcast. You get a different speaker every, every other week. Right. But the collaboration piece, you know, especially right now with COVID, it's taking a little more creativity to, um, you know, what we've tried to do is FaceTime families from the room um, as part of the session. So as, as part of that initial interview with the patient, calling the family right then and there to get the, the buy-in, get the conversation going and flowing. I think especially when we're making more, yeah, life or death, uh, life or death calls, when we're the people who are deciding, is this person going to eat or not? Um, or one of the lines we use a lot here at the hospital is, you know, should the patient decide on a PO diet despite the known risks of aspiration, airway obstruction, malnutrition, dehydration, and the list goes on, giving those, quote, safest recommendations and really having the family be comfortable with the fact that, yes, the patient could choke or the patient could, um, you know, have really uncomfortable side effects if they are on a PO diet versus NPO. I think it's, you know, if you have the, the right management structure in place, the focus is on quality and not so much the productivity piece of it. Um, but that takes a, a strong leadership. I think it takes servant leadership um, of walking the walk, not just talking the talk. Yeah. So. yeah. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying my words that I couldn't get out very well. <laughs> All right. What's next? One of one of the other subjects that was was brought up again by my colleagues in in preparation for the call of what do we need to know? I think it's another subject is when it's time to refer out, uh, when it's time to realize we don't have the answer, and when it's time to really collaborate. I think most likely your audience again is is varied. You've probably got people who are the only speech pathologist in their facility. Uh, maybe they're in a clinical fellowship and stranded and have very little mentorship out there. Maybe you have someone uh, who's in a big department of SLPs, but feels like the black sheep because they have a different way of practicing. So I think one of the, the beautiful things that, again, this the podcast uh, venue as well as social media venues and Facebook groups and things is it's bringing us together. It's really breaking down uh, the barriers and walls and bringing people together. So getting comfortable to, with collaboration, I think that any, uh, any good SLP would be open to a phone call, for example. So if you're out in a community hospital and you're the sole SLP 
and you have your very first patient who's come off ECMO and is critically ill and you can't bring them down to fluoro for a video swallow, and what do you do? Placing that call out to another speech pathologist in another local hospital um, and getting advice about it. So I think that we have to be okay with what we don't know and getting that second opinion from someone who's trusted and collaborating with with others in, in the facility that you're a part of. So, you know, some newer clinicians, I think, get nervous talking to physicians or surgeons, for example. But being on the same footing, realizing that you're all spokes of the wheel, taking care of the patient in the middle, can make that a little more comfortable and easy to just pick up the phone and call and say, hey, I'm worried about your patient. This is why, um, you know, always keeping the patient in the forefront of your decision making and communicating with them. Um, most of our referrals, obviously, out to other uh, professionals would have to do with gastroenterology and otolaryngology. So knowing uh, or, or double-checking on, your, on yourself, is it acute enough in a hospital setting that you have to call an ENT in, for example? Um, we have lots of patients who are hoarse, and we suspect a vocal cord paresis, but is that something that you would have to have a, a consulting ENT come in um, who doesn't work in the hospital all the time, or is that something that could be done as an outpatient? That's kind of always a question that comes up. Same thing with GI. You know, you do a video swallow and you see some dysmotility on AP view. You're looking at, you know, anterior, posterior, and see residue in the esophagus. Does that really warrant? having a GI intervention right then and there, um, or is it something that could be managed as an outpatient? Those are kind of some clinical decisions that you've got to look at. Yeah. Um, let me let me ask you, Andrea, since since you do have this dual role of SLP and, and the MHA, I've, I've had this come up a few times in the last few months, and I never had thought about this before, but in depending on, you know, kind of where I am geographically, um, you know, with, with, I do mobile fees, so I go to different skilled nursing facilities, kind of on different ends of town. So, you know, I know if I'm on this end of town, this is, you know, the go-to laryngologist to go to. If I'm on this end of town, I know this is the laryngologist to go to. And, you know, the reason I make this specific referral is that's the person in the office that actually has the specialty in laryngology. And I had had a few administrators that said, you can't make a specific recommendation to a doctor. You can only just say, refer to ENT. And my defense was, I feel like that's doing the patient injustice because I could just be sending them on a rat race to any ENT that doesn't even specialize in laryngology. And I was like, no, no, we need to make sure that they get to an actual laryngologist, not someone that's the ear is their, you know, focus of their practice. So I I felt I was a little caught off guard by that. And I understand their reasoning. But on the other, on the other hand, I don't want to send the patient on a wild goose chase to find who would be the best for their particular condition. So Curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's it's a great subject. Um, we see the same thing with rehab referrals, you know, and, and there's so much red tape for what we can and cannot say. Um, and just, as we know, we live in a litigious society and um, lots of red tape all around. I think, you know, making, making the case, um, providing data, it's just like what we do, right? We, we're trying to promote our service, for example. It's not going to help to just say, we, we do great work. We're going to um, do this and this for your patient. It's very it's being more specific. You know, what, what is it that we provide? So maybe in that scenario, having a list of the local otolaryngologists and 
um, almost submitting it like a proposal that this is your algorithm and why. You know, you're not going to send someone to, yeah, someone who deals with Saruman management. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> I had an administrator that was like, well, what's your relationship with this doctor? And I was like, I have, I don't know this person at all. I just know that they do. I've read a million of their reports. They're very knowledgeable in this area. That is my only thing. And, and I completely understood where they were coming from. You know, I, I kept promoting this one doctor and, and I'm sure it did come off as I was getting right. some sort of kickback or something that I was not at all. I just the knew this doctor did good work. Yeah. So it just yeah. got me thinking like crud, you know, I, I get that, but how do we, how do we help? <laughs> yeah. So, and that's an interesting, it's funny. It's a, um, I, you know, I've gone down the trajectory away from again, the PhD tract and towards a more administrative tract, um, which people who know me back in the day would kind of laugh at because I was always bucking the system. Um, I would get so frustrated with productivity standards and um, the lack of appreciation of everything that we do beyond direct patient care. Um, so I, I think that having, you know, enough of that history, having um, lived a full clinical caseload and doing research on the side and doing, you know, education, presentations, things like that, um, that are outside of just direct patient care. It's, it's a good it's a good background to have, and I think it's been nice for me to bring that into administration to understand that aspect. And some things, you know, we, we have to support things that we're not comfortable with. Um, so going back to your example, that's it's a big frustration, um, and probably the, the best course of action would be to provide the patient with all options. Um, but again, keep the data right there on the on the list that this is specifically for their condition. Yeah. So awesome. Thank you for that. Yeah. All right. One of one of the other suggestions I guess I would give out to beginning SLPs and people transitioning again into medical speech pathology would be observing whenever possible. You know, whether that be a colleague in your facility who's not a speech pathologist. Um, but also a colleague who is a speech pathologist. So I think a nice practice if you do have someone, especially within your facility, who is is a, an SLP, taking time, you know, wh whether it be once a month or once a week, and just saying, hey, I'd love to see you do a standardized language evaluation, or I'd love to watch you do an informal COGAVAL, or I'd really love to see you do your video swallow today. Um, and being open to that type of mentorship, observation, and again, that collaboration. If you're solo, if you're the only SLP out there, um, doing the same thing, you know, reaching out to your local hospital and, and asking, can I come and watch a video one day? One of our speech paths that we actually hired full-time used to work in a local skilled nursing facility. And um, what I loved about her is she would come with her patients for their outpatient video swallows. She would actually bring them herself to the hospital um, and be there for the video swallow to observe, to, to let up and, and be a participant in that experience. So I think, you know, taking any opportunity to observe, to shadow, um, and to reach out to your, your fellow colleagues. Another thing that is, again, it's kind of the, the net, the web has broken down all these barriers that did exist. Um, but something that we've done in our local community is we've developed a, an email blast chain, basically, in our company to connect all of the speech pathologists that work in the division of my company. 
So there's about 50 people on the email chain, and we send out questions, uh, articles that we find, surveys. We plan continuing at events just for us um, to talk about unique things in, in the hospital system that we work in. So taking any opportunities like that as well, starting a journal club in your local community and reaching out to local people to see if they want to have a coffee date and discuss something new that's come out, just was published, or maybe how, again, what their protocol is for approaching a bedside swallow to help, you know, keep improving our practices. Yeah. Awesome. Let, let me ask you, Andrea, again, I'm talking to your administrator hat here. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of people, a lot of SLPs that have always said, you know, I w- can I just watch you do a video swallow or can I just watch how you administer this? And the SLPs are willing to do it, but the DOR or the administrator mm-hmm. says, you know, no, we have productivity requirements to meet. We can't allow that to happen. Or no, because of privacy concerns, you know, you don't work for our facility. We can't let that happen. So I guess, you know, how do you combat those questions? <laughs> That's a great one, too. Hmm. I'm big on I'm big on proposals. So, um, approaching administration with why things are important, I think, makes the understanding there. So, you know, I work for a large for-profit corporation, and one of the first things I did when I got here was make a proposal for all speech pathologists to get the MBS IMP paid for, um, which was unheard of to have the hospital pay for a certification like that. Um, and it was a heavy proposal and had some legwork behind it of why it was important, and it was approved. So I think the support can be there with the right um, input behind it and rationale for why it's important. I think in that case, most people in hospital administration, well, all people in hospital administration care about patients. They wouldn't be in this type of a setting if not. Um, so I think remembering that while they have to have an executive hat on, Um, and worry about the bottom dollar and business model, they also care deeply about patients. Otherwise, they'd be an executive at Hewlett-Packard or, you know, Amazon. They do care about patients and framing things from a lens of patient safety and quality of service, I think is maybe the best uh, course of action or tact to have things like that supported. You know, even if you set up a proposal, which was very um, specific as far as time, time-bound and how much time, how much um, of this orientation, you could even call it, or education time was needed, that might be supported. Awesome. Thank you. I love that answer. Mm-hmm. I think I, I want this to come out the right way. I, I think a lot of times we're afraid to do that legwork of putting the proposal together. You know, like, oh, it's just going to be shut down. They're going to just mm-hmm. say no. You know, I don't want to waste my time doing that. But I think, like you said, People just don't know what they don't know. And and I think a lot of times when you put these proposals together and you put the data out there and you put the facts and the research, a lot of these administrators are like, crap, I had no idea. You know, and I think especially with our own field, our own field is growing faster than a lot of us can keep up with. You know, there's no way we can expect administrators and, and the corporate people to know that stuff as well. So right. I think it I think it very much is worth the time. It's definitely worth the legwork. Um, that yeah. speaks also to uh, we're, we're big proponents of u- the use of standardized testing instead of just the, quote, informal um, model. And I, I kind of cringe when I hear, oh, well, I, I did do a standardized test. I did the MOCA on this patient. And, um, yeah, that's, a, that's an exam. <laughs> it's a, a nice brief exam. But I hear 
from some people out in the community, oh, well, we don't have any materials. You know, I don't have any materials at my disposal. We don't have standardized tests here at the, at the facility. So that's the type of thing, too, that you have to make a concerted proposal for and really advocate for your, again, quality of service for the patient and patient safety. Because without a, a standard approach, you don't have an accurate diagnostic, which could result in safety um, outcomes. So yeah. that's really, I think, an important piece. Building that library is, is so important. And I remember when I first moved to Florida, I was kind of had this idea of being a traveling speech pathologist. Which that's how I initially ended up here. Um, and the first couple jobs I had were in skilled nursing. And one of the facilities literally had no materials whatsoever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I couldn't, I couldn't even believe it. Um, when I did my 10-minute orientation <laughs> given by the physical therapist, <laughs> yep. um, I asked, you know, I had, I think, two evaluations lined up for 10 minutes after I got there. And I said, well, okay, where, where are the testing materials? And there literally were none. <laughs> so I recalled what I could of the short story from the Cognitive Linguistic Quick Test. I um, tried to think about some of the, the parts of the RIPA that I could remember. And the next day showed up with my own materials and laminated things that I had kept. Um, it was pretty unbelievable. So I think... I, I hear the struggle's real, um, as they say, and it's it's just so important to advocate for the person at the heart of what we do, which is the patient, um, and make sure that you have the, the tools that you need. Thank you for admitting that, Andrea. We love to hear. <laughs> I, I had a conversation with a younger clinician the other day, and, and same thing. She's like, I just showed up. There is nothing here, nothing at all. And she's like, but PT just got you know 20 new treadmills. Why didn't I get anything? And I was like, well, but did you ask? And she was like, well, no. And I was like, you know, when was the last time this place had full-time speech pathology? And she's like, I don't think ever. I said, okay, so that's probably why. They've just had a transient, you know, traveler in here or there. Who knows what the history was? But you're there now, so ask for what you need. And, you know, a few days later, she's like, oh, they gave me everything I asked for. I was like, well, there you go, you know? So I think we want to pin PTs as being the bad guys with all these treadmills, but I don't think I don't think they have to justify to administration why they're important. You know, I think it's a known fact why a treadmill is important, but for us, we we got to get people up to speed with why we need the tools we do. So, absolutely, yeah, and that gets back to the legwork behind it. It's it's always going to be worth it to ask. Um, I got really lucky when I fell into to this current role. It's because I. Um, as people listening not in Florida may or may not know, there's a, a phenomenon called the snowbird. And so there's these people from up north who have a second house, and it's in Florida, and they spend the winter in Florida. So for many months of the year, the hospital census stays pretty um, static. And then all of a sudden, right around Thanksgiving, the census doubles, and you need m- many more staff on hand. So I, I mentioned when I first moved here, I the only jobs I could land were um, in a couple of the skilled nursing facilities where I was living, and then I found this opportunity in a hospital for a, a quote seasonal speech pathologist, which I just jumped at. And I actually, when I um, obtained the position, I was living an hour and a half north of the hospital, and I made that commute every day for four months, an hour and a half each way, um, just to be here. And then it kind of fortunately turned into my current role as a supervisor um, because of a kind of a nice 
yeah, pattern of events that happens. So yeah, awesome, awesome. I love hearing that. So mm-hmm. awesome. Thank you, Andrea. When I when I um, did get here, kind of going from no material land, I came into full material land. Um, the department was established about thirty years ago by our current director, who has amassed probably thirty different speech and language diagnostics, um, many pieces of equipment, and lots of materials for for. Awesome. All right. Did we cover everything? I think so. Um, So swallow your pride, swallow your spittle. Um, I think the the take-home message is really you've got to just look things up, you know, and and I think we all do that. We're constantly learning, constantly um, challenging ourselves, but creating your own library I think is is critical. Um, Again, I'd encourage anyone coming into the medical side of things to spend time with your patient, not interrogating them, just watching and just observing um, and trying to figure things out from the other side instead of looking at the MRI and and seeing that they had a a left MCA, CVA, um, but going in the room and coming out and saying, oh, that is a a non-fluent aphasia. And I think that it's probably localized to the ACA. Um, That's going to be a good challenge for people starting out um, to go kind of in reverse yeah. and teaching themselves that Amazing. way. Let me ask you, you said that um, one of your most favorite, you didn't put an article, you put a book in here, and I, I have not heard of this. I'm curious to hear about it. Yeah. Um, so that was one of your questions. What was a life-changing, game-changing article? There's so many. Um, you know, there's so, again, so much to learn and, and discuss when it comes to our, our field and and. I'm so proud to be a speech pathologist in our field with how much is out there. Um, Starting out, I think I mentioned at the beginning, I was interested in autism, um, and I actually considered a PhD in autism research um, until I had my placement in the hospital. So that's how I I turned to the dark side. And at that time, a book was published called I Had Brain Surgery, What's Your Excuse? And I just thought the title was hilarious because it just speaks to pretty much everything we've just talked about. What is what is our excuse, yeah, right? We have right. no excuse for not um, excelling and, and achieving or exceeding the bar for what we do. Um, so it was written by a neurologist who had um, a brain injury and basically her experience recovering, um, knowing so much about the brain and how that affected her, um, being an expert in neuroanatomy and then having a, a brain injury. Um, it's a, an interesting lens to to come from. So I think it's a, it's a good read. It's a light read. It's pretty funny. Awesome. I'll so, have to check that out. Thank you. Yes, it. I've not heard of that. I look forward to, to reading that. So awesome, Andrea. Thank you mm-hmm. so much. I really enjoyed this conversation with you. Thank yeah. you, Teresa. Thanks for all you do to promote the field and get people educated and talking about yeah. different topics. So, awesome. Thanks, thanks Andrea. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at teresarichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.